I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as always, we've got a diverse array of topics in post-Republican, post-America, I guess. Uh, we'll start with Inez, who will talk about the impeachment, uh, sorry, rather the indictment of Donald Trump and his lawyers in Georgia. I'll talk a little bit about the new special counsel for Hunter Biden and all of the machinations going on in that case. Josh will talk about the pro-life cause and the need for prudence, given the constraints we face today. And last but not least, Emily will take us home by talking about the new shopping trend for 2023, smash and grabs. So with that, we'll start with Inez. Yeah, I mean, another day, another Donald Trump indictment. Um, you know, this one, I think, does present certain problems uh, for Trump that the others do not, namely that this is there are two aspects of it, namely that this is this is a state case uh, in Georgia. It's based on state law, which one, I think the the um, prosecutor here has doesn't have to, to invent or stretch the law nearly as much. You know, Georgia has pretty strong RICO statute, um, doesn't have to invent a novel legal theory under which to charge Donald Trump, which is not to say that the charges are um, or, or that it, it, the charges aren't political, um, but it, it is a little closer to the mark, I think, than the federal version that was filed along many of the same lines. Um, and then, too, of course, there's the political aspect of this, which is that it's a state crime. Um, it carries relatively heavy jail sentence. And even if he wins, Donald Trump can't pardon himself. Um in terms of what what's actually uh, in this indictment, um, I think we're all sort of reading frantically, trying to figure it out. But um, from what I can tell, this is the the main conspiracy and the main thing that he's being charged with um, is the attempt to overturn an election uh, when he knew it was wrong. And I think that's going to be the the uh, crux of this case. Once again, we are talking about what is going on in the mind of Donald J. Trump um, in terms of intent. And uh, I think that that is going to be an uphill battle. And, and this reminds me of some of the other indictments in the sense that, um, and the federal indictment on this, this same topic, in the sense that it seems to imagine that just because his advisors or quote unquote experts around him are telling him uh, that that he did lose in Georgia, uh, that he believed that he was losing in Georgia. And that seems to me to be a very uphill battle uh, to, to prove in court, especially about Donald Trump, who famously is not you know, super fond of listening to his advisors, right? And and um, has hired a lot of people in the past who have done some, you know, pretty wild and crazy stuff. He has not, you know, surrounded himself with the very best people at all times, nor has he uh, shown a right in his, in his um, track record, a, a particular willingness to listen to them um, in terms of advice. So I think that's a really big uphill battle for the prosecutor here. Um, some of these things do, do, some of these charges though, do, uh, definitely, in terms of the broader impact, uh, in terms of, of uh, they're going through Trump to get to us sort of uh, thing, th there are some free speech stories uh, here. Um, a lot of these counts that are, are designed to support the main count of, of this um, RICO count are, um, you know, they're tweets about overturn, you know, about the, the election being um, stolen right uh they they're they're count that's counted as an overt act in furtherance of this conspiracy right so like even trump telling in in one of these uh <laughs> one of these many counts uh in and by the way there are 19 defendants charged here so we very well may have like a kind of old school rudy giuliani's one of them but i'm now referencing rudy from his his days prosecuting the mob right uh in new york city we may have like one you know very long table with a lot of defendants depending on whether some of them take deals or peel off or try to otherwise separate themselves um but there, there are 19 different defendants for this um but some of the the uh, counts in support of this this conspiracy are things like you know trump tweeting to uh to tune in to One America News, right, to watch state legislative hearings. Um, that obviously seems to to impinge on to free speech. Now, the, the tension is always, I mean, free speech stops if you are encouraging someone 
um, in furtherance of this kind of conspiracy, in furtherance of a crime. But again, that all depends on them being able to to um, prove that Donald Trump committed any kind of crime to begin with, and prove that his state of mind um, was that he he knew that he had lost the election and that he was trying to further this this criminal conspiracy um, it, in order to do it. I mean. It, it goes without saying, you know, we um, we've covered all these other indictments. It, it, it's at this point, it's almost uh, cliche or boring to say uh, we, we left the Rubicon behind a long time ago. Um, and, you know, the, the, oh, one more thing about this that I think is relevant, the gag order, right, um, about and this is on the federal count, not on this Georgia count. So I'm mixing things here, but um, I do think it's relevant. They, they came out both came out in the last 48 hours. The, that um, federal prosecutors are trying to shut Donald Trump up about the federal case. Um, and there are all kinds of complications, which is exactly why you don't go after an active political um, active political opponent. So for example, the debate stage, right? If Donald Trump does decide to debate, which seems unlikely, right? Anything he says against Mike Pence, Mike Pence is a witness in this. Right. So anything that he any way he criticizes one of his political opponents could be interfering with a witness in a federal, you know, in, in a federal trial. Um, so to the extent that these charges, I think, should be taken really seriously by by Trump and by people around him, um, it's it's the way in which they can violate all of these these auxiliary sort of laws um, to the extent that I think that it's easier to prove some of this. It could be easier to prove that uh, false statements, for example, to a grand jury that could land you in jail on a state charge. And there is nobody who could, could pardon him. Even the state governor can't pardon. There's a board in this, this case uh, that deals with pardons. Um, so it's not even as straight up as like there's a Republican governor who has the power to pardon Trump. So um, this all shows how many, how much these various indictments are going to interfere with him being able to run a campaign. And perhaps that is the point um, that that he's going to have to appear at all of these simultaneous different um, different indictments, and he's going to have to defend himself. And then in some cases, his his ability to run for president is going to run up against what he is or isn't allowed to do as a defendant in some of these trials. Um, again, this this all goes to the general morass of, of um, you know, the, the stench of political prosecution and the attempt to actually jail the leading opposition. Uh, but again, we've been over that before. So with that, I'll turn it over to everybody else. To, to What do you guys make of this mess? I mean, I'll be real quick here, uh, because frankly, a lot of this tragically has become somewhat trite. Uh, all the talk of Rubicon, Banana Republic, it's all true. But I mean, how many times can we can we say it, I guess? Um, I'll, I'll make two quick points. One is just to underscore the fact that this is because it is a state prosecution, even if Trump were to become president, he cannot pardon himself for this. Actually, I was talking with a lawyer this past weekend. I, I'm not barred as an attorney in Georgia or anything, but the Georgia state constitution actually makes it a little difficult for, for even the governor. The governor cannot kind of unilaterally pardon in Georgia as well. It's kind of a whole complicated process. So, you know, you 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 add that to kind of the other drama, which is that Fulton County permits cameras in the courtroom. I mean, this could easily become like the one indictment maybe that that America becomes most fixated on for, for various reasons there. Um, to me, the most troubling part of this, which is something that we touched upon in with the John Eastman stuff and, and the federal indictment, the criminalization of legal counsel. I, I mean, again, like I, I just can't get over this. I, I mean, that is just dark, dark stuff. I mean, tr I mean, trotting in lawyers here, like 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 my friend Jenna Ellis, uh, Jeffrey Clark. I mean, his name is coming up again and again here. Ugly, ugly stuff. Just, just, just horrific. Um, like I mean, it, it, think about like what that means if you are a conservative law student. Like, like what kind of career paths you you might take, or what kind of clients you might want to take. And they've tried this for years to an extent. I mean, many law firms have kind of silent cultures where if you're conservative, you shouldn't put that on your on your firm profile, all that stuff. But now they're just out in the open, just trying to completely extirpate conservatives from representing top tier defendants. And that is just really, really, really troubling stuff overall. And um, I, I guess that's my biggest concern here above all, perhaps. I'll go next because I just have something really quick to say, which is as I was, uh, again, like I haven't read the full thing word for word yet, because as we're taping this, it just came out last night. And, and basically, as I'm just flipping through some of it, it's just, um, I remember 
part of the reason I was uh, honestly like pretty scared when Donald Trump won the 2016 election, uh, not necessarily for like policy reasons, but for the reasons that it just, what is this going to do to the country? Um, and, you know, I, I think people felt okay when before COVID, the economy was good, especially on the right. People were really happy with what had happened at the Supreme Court. And I'm not blaming Donald Trump for any of this. It just more of a, uh, the the sense was always that the reaction to Donald Trump could be much worse for the country than, than Donald Trump ever individually could be for the country. And as you're flipping through this and looking at Fannie Willis citing things like tweets um, and you have calls for people to, to watch One American News and Newsmax, um, that is, it just gives you a sinking feeling in the, in the pit of your stomach because it's not how the country is supposed to function. We are so, we're so off the rails right now. Um, and everybody knows that, but this really underscored it for me reading through it was, uh, it, it doesn't give you a good feeling um, when they released it early and then took it. I mean, all of it is, there's just been a lot of funny business here. Let's not forget the juror who was talking about how she sells what, like which product products on Etsy. Uh, the whole thing is, is really gross and disturbing, um, and it's it's not taking us anywhere good. Yeah, I have that. I share that same kind of sinking feeling. And each one of these indictments hits a little bit differently. They're all tools of lawfare. Uh, effectively, one way to put it would be to kind of try to instill terror in the hearts of non-believers in the regime, and that's how I think they all ought to be seen. The more outlandish and, you know, in this case, it's essentially akin to the Jack Smith January 6th D.C. indictment. It's essentially criminalizing contesting elections, criminalizing defending those who would contest elections, criminalizing any public statements around contesting elections, and obviously criminalizing the opposition and anyone associated with it. Um, reading the indictment, and I haven't read it in full, but I started pouring over it last night. Uh, you look at it, and this is, I, and I assume this is, must be what it was like living in any kind of tyrannical country in the 20th century and seeing the show trial charges conjured up against individuals. And of course, you're talking about here again the leading representative of the opposition, essentially, in this country, but it obviously transcends that. This is ultimately about, to Josh's point, scaring off future generations of conservative lawyers, scaring off future Republican candidates, making it so that you can't say anything about the integrity of elections as the integrity of them continues to degrade. And of course, obviously, the criminalization of dissent in this country. So it is a dark and dangerous place. Each of these indictments, I think, to some extent, and I keep saying this over and over in many contexts, but the brazenness is the point of these exercises, it is to shove it in our faces that we have all the trappings of a first world country, but we've been reduced basically through a global equity agenda, you could say, to a third world country, just like we're among the rest of the nations of the world. And it's a terribly sad commentary. And it's not clear how we get out of this, because even if we had the mechanism and the will to engage in tit for tat here, where does that ultimately spiral down to? And by the way, that's not saying that there shouldn't be tit for tat and fighting fire with fire, but it is to say that we're a fundamentally different country than we thought we were, than we grew up in, certainly, to the extent we're forced to engage. So we've already lost in some ways, but the sun comes up the next day and the fight has to continue, obviously. Uh, the other side of this coin, and I'll transition now to my own segment, is how the regime protects its own. And Last week, of course, on a Friday news dump, as always, we got word from Merrick Garland that because of the extraordinary circumstances around the Hunter Biden non-prosecution, sham plea deal, et cetera, that David Weiss has now been made special counsel. And you got the immediate reaction of the commentariat was this part of a continued cover up. It's trying to shield David Weiss, et cetera. And that's all true. But contemporaneous with the announcement that David Weiss would be appointed a special counsel, and he purportedly asked for this on August 8th, the special counsel order came down August 11th. Note that the special counsel order uh, flies in the face to the regulations around special counsels because this is not someone from outside government. And others will point out that this was done also under Attorney General Barr, for example. But obviously here you're talking about a special counsel that was the one overseeing the sham prosecution plea deal in the first place. 
set that aside for a moment, but contemporaneous with the naming of Weiss as special counsel and giving him these powers, which we were told all along he already had, and it would be no problem for him to usurp them. Additionally, the plea deal and case in Delaware fell apart. The DOJ called for dismissing the case because there's apparently an impasse between Hunter Biden and the DOJ. This stems from the collapse of the sham plea deal and pretrial diversion agreement, which collapsed under the most basic and fundamental of questioning, lines of questioning, from the judge in Delaware, Noreka. And when the difference of opinions, it appears at least, showed in terms of how each side interpreted this global immunity, get out of jail free provision in the pretrial diversion agreement that the judge wasn't to be allowed to touch in the hearing, that killed the case, killed the plea deal. And so what Weiss said and the DOJ said was, there is no venue in Delaware. Hunter Biden had waived venue over these charges that really should have existed and been brought in other jurisdictions. The case has fallen apart. So the government made that case. Hunter Biden's team responded. Hunter Biden's team, as it turns out, based on, and this is all kind of unfolding in real time, didn't actually address whether or not they agreed with the Department of Justice's view that the case should be dismissed from Delaware. However, what Hunter Biden's team did say, and this is very important, is that from their perspective, the pretrial diversion agreement is binding. That is, the global immunity get out of jail free card stands. So there's some contention as to what that all means. Hunter Biden's lawyer, main lawyer, Christopher Clark, also, and this is again all happening in real time, has now pulled himself off of the case, uh, essentially saying that there's now going to be a dispute. There's going to be a contested plea deal, essentially, and he may be a witness in connection with that contestation. So thus, he'll be off the case and he's replaced. So all of this is kind of unfolding in real time. Uh, there are many important takeaways, I think, associated with this. But, you know, obviously, the immediate reaction is the very U.S. attorney who oversaw the slow walking of the case, shielding from Hunter Biden's team and tipping him off to investigatory steps that were being taken, whose team prevented any leads from being followed to Joe Biden and oversaw what was an unprecedented non-prosecution and then sham plea deal that was the poisonous fruit of that tree. He's the one made a special counsel. Also note, when we look at the timeline of how things have played out here, the plea deal itself and the negotiations, which Hunter Biden's team say started promptly at the DOJ's urging in May 2020, followed what likely Hunter Biden's team, and or at least the DOJ, knew that the whistleblower allegations were being brought to Congress. The plea deal itself dropped two days before the depositions of the two IRS whistleblowers dropped, and it was a known secret in Washington that they were going to come out that week. So there's some speculation that the plea deal itself was dropped to undercut the whistleblower uh, allegations. You know, we've also learned about the Hunter Biden and Joe Biden alleged $5 million each bribe. So all of this stinks, essentially. And it appears that had those whistleblowers never spoken out, that maybe there never would have been the sham plea deal. Had Judge Noreka never asked these questions, the sham plea deal would have never fallen apart. And now the question is, what happens in Delaware? Supposedly, the government itself is now considering bringing charges in other jurisdictions. Uh, they, they cite tax charges in their filing. So it's unclear if they would ever expand the charges to say FARA or other issues at play. But there have also been statutes of limitation that have lapsed here, thanks to, again, the case that the special counsel, who is supposed to be independent and apolitical and outside the realm of an investigation, uh, is supposed to deal with. But here, it's the same guy who presided over the sham case in the first place. Maybe they think that this will shield the probes and the cover-ups, essentially, of the obstruction of justice that the justice system has engaged in here from congressional oversight. Uh, there's nothing that stops Congress from subpoenaing the special counsel's office now, and, and before that, David Weiss's office, for all relevant documents and interviews, et cetera. So we'll see how that all plays up. But obviously this stinks to high heaven and I'm curious what you all make of all of these recent developments. So I'd, I'd add one more to your what ifs, uh, Ben, which is if, if Congress hadn't flipped Republican, uh, no one would know about this. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's also what I would add to your analysis of this. Um, it, it it seems to me that what happened and, and, you know, take with many, many grains of salt, because there's obviously a ton behind the scenes going on here. 
is that the DOJ is telling Congress ongoing investigation, we can't give you information, right? So it's beneficial for them to keep that investigation quote unquote open. Um, but in the course of the plea deal with Hunter's lawyers, they said, no, this is, you know, we, we are done. We're done with the investigation. This is it. If you if you plead guilty to these charges. And what what's happened is the judge basically called BS on this. Um, and she said, well, but right here in this agreement, are, are you are you closing this case or not? Right. Like, um, is is this over or not? And then they had to say, because they have testified to Congress that it's an ongoing investigation, they had to say in court, no, no, we're still looking into this case. Um, to which Hunter's lawyers obviously said, no, you told us like that that wasn't the case, right? So um, it's basically advantageous for the Justice Department to pretend that they are continuing to investigate this case um, when they made it pretty clear, you know, again, speculation, but it seems like what they did was make it pretty clear to Hunter and perhaps to Joe, right, um, that that if, if uh, Hunter pleads guilty to these charges, the thing is done. Right. But they have to keep those two simultaneous balls in the air uh, because they had to testify to Congress, which circles back to what I said. Um, imagine if if the if Republicans don't take the House uh, by by a narrow margin in, in the midterm elections, um, then I think we would not see any of this. The press certainly has no uh, intention of, of, you know, covering this or bringing additional facts out of the light that aren't being brought out by the House investigations. Um, and to my mind, this does point, and there's been a lot of strategic back and forth about whether or not impeachment is a good idea. Um, to my mind, this does point more towards impeachment being a good idea because um, of the additional scrutiny and and the unavoidability, um, because the investigation here is happening in the House. It's not going to happen in the Department of Justice. It's definitely not going to happen in the press, right? So if we want these facts before the American people, the House is going to have to do it. So I I can't quite recall if we've discussed this on this segment already. Maybe Ben mentioned it, but it's worth emphasizing that the idea of appointing a a sitting U.S. attorney, let let alone the sitting U.S. attorney who just botched this in every way imaginable, which we only found out about due to the diligence of a sober-minded federal district court judge, but the very nature of appointing an active U.S. attorney as a special counsel is itself ludicrous. I mean, it, it's oxymoronic on its face. The, the The entire point of a special counsel under the special counsel statute is that it should be an outsider. A former U.S. attorney, which if I'm not mistaken is what I believe John Durham was, is fine because someone like that would still be outside of the present government. But a sitting active U.S. attorney, I, I mean, it barely even passes the laugh test. And to Ben's broader point, this strikes me, the, the whole visual of this, the whole optics of this strikes me as a very kind of ham-fisted attempt at a mop-up job by the regime after the district court judge in Delaware properly exposed this, this plea deal for all to see. And, um, you know, I think the conservatives have been totally right to kind of, you, you know, throw their arms up in the air and, uh, again, to kind of hit this this recurring leitmotif that we can't seem to escape, unfortunately, this this happening juxtaposed in very close chronological order with what we're seeing in Trump in Georgia. I mean, to use the somewhat overwrought but nonetheless highly accurate phrase, this is two-tier justice in action. And this is happening with a president who wants to or purports to want to have moral credibility on the issue of corruption in international affairs, which is patently absurd. Uh, it, it's not just absurd when you think about what was happening with Shokin and Hunter Biden and Joe Biden at the exact same time during the Obama administration. That was always farcical that Joe Biden is going to go and lecture other countries on corruption. Joe Biden, uh, well, he is uh, uh, you know, overseeing or not even, we, we don't know, it doesn't matter. He has knowledge of what his son is doing um, with foreign nationals. I mean, it is just, it is mind boggling. And then on the other hand, uh, Joe Biden as current president of the United States having the audacity to lecture other countries on the issue of corruption. Um, you know, people freaked out about the, the moral credibility of the United States on the international stage being, uh, you know, 
eaten away at under the Trump administration. And, and maybe if you look at certain things, there's, there's truth to that. Those same people should be up in arms about what Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, uh, and James Biden, and Frank Biden, and um, Valerie Biden, all of the Bidens uh, have done to the moral credibility of the United States uh, as during his presidency alone, not even to get into his, his vice presidency. It's absolutely outrageous. And I feel like people aren't even talking about that aspect of the story, what this does uh, to the, the credibility of the sitting president of the United States, the United States in general, United States foreign policy, uh, and also, you know, how, as we talked about last week, the Newsweek op-ed that was published asking how might button be compromised. Uh, I think we're going to learn more and more about that in the days to come. So with that, I'll kick it over. All right, let's go to Josh and, and transition to abortion and the politics of abortion. Okay, so this has been a recurring debate in the, was it nine and a half, 10 months or so since the Dobbs decision overturned Roe versus Wade is, you, you know what it kind of reminds me of, I'll, I'll say at the outset, it kind of reminds me of the Obamacare debate is that Republicans, conservatives knew forever that they were opposed to Obamacare. They never seemed to know exactly what it was they were for. We saw that play out with the kind of infamous John McCain thumbs down in Trump's first term and all that. So similarly, uh, conservatives, Republicans, for for a very long time, pro-lifers more generally, I probably should just say, knew that they were opposed to overturning, or excuse me, they, they support overturning Roe versus Wade, the entire kind of modern legal conservative movement with the foundation of the Federal Society, a lot of that was oriented towards that goal. But there seems to have been a, a seriously deficient kind of lack of, of, of thinking about what comes next. Uh, now, there's somewhat of a bifurcation here uh, where you have some people who kind of take the Stephen Douglas approach, which is just kick it back to the states. Uh, you know, that certainly was the jurisprudential, not necessarily normative, but that was the jurisprudential stance of the late Justice Scalia and to a slightly lesser extent, the majority opinion of Sam Alito in the Dobbs case. And then you kind of have the more um, Lincolnian abolitionist stance uh, taken to its logical conclusion. The argument is that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, which speaks of protecting persons, should be construed to prohibit abortion in America, properly speaking. That is the argument that I have made as, as an end goal, as a logical North Star, as a logical culmination of the pro-life movement. However, that doesn't say anything whatsoever about means and kind of incrementalism and prudence. That only speaks about ends. And what we've seen, unfortunately, in, in the past nine and a half, 10 months or so, is a, a, a number now, most recently Ohio last week. Now, it's worth knowing that Ohio's issue one ballot box referendum last week, the word abortion, right to choose, anything like this, the euphemisms, none of it was actually mentioned in the text of issue one. But both sides knew that it was a very close proxy for that. So Ohio was actually going to vote on, on a direct ballot box initiative this November to uh, to legalize abortion, uh, effectively kind of California style in Ohio. It would be truly tragic, of course, if that passes. Issue one last week was a proxy because it would have raised the threshold for amending the state constitution from a bare 50 plus one majority to 60 percent. Issue one failed. It failed by 57 to 43 margin. Uh, the pro-life conservative side was outspent by a margin of roughly three to one. And again, this is not the first time that we've seen a similar ballot box defeat. So Kansas was really the first example. This was just after the Dobbs decision, maybe about five or six weeks after it last um, last summer. So the Kansas Supreme Court, it's interesting because it's Kansas. You think of it as a very red state, but the Kansas Supreme Court it completely ludicrously construed their state constitution years ago to contain an, an abortion right. So Kansans were asked basically to to vote on this, and they rejected it 59-41. So the pro-abortion side won that by 18 points. Um, similarly, Kentucky, again, a very red state, um, they voted to reject a declaration that their state constitution should not be construed to contain an abortion right, 52-48. to 48. Michigan, a, a less conservative, less pro-life state, nonetheless, similar result. And then most recently, earlier this year in Wisconsin, there was a very high-profile state Supreme Court election um, where the pro-abortion side, I mean, that, that state Supreme Court election basically became kind of a single-issue abortion proxy. Uh, the, the Democratic or progressive candidate, I should say, won by, I think, 11 points or so, therefore flipping that state Supreme Court in what has become one of the nation's closest swing states where gerrymandering and redistricting is, is extremely important, I, I, I might add. And the Supreme Court has had a lot of litigation there in Wisconsin on that. Now, having said that, it's not all doom and gloom. So there have been a number of examples where not at the ballot box, but at the legislature, 
where Republican governors have passed fairly strong pro-life legislation and seemingly have not been punished for it. So you had Greg Abbott sign a heartbeat bill in Texas. He won by a comfortable margin. Mike DeWine in Ohio signed a heartbeat bill, won by a massive margin, like 24 points. Again, hard to figure out exactly what's going on in Ohio there. Brian Kemp in Georgia won by a much larger than expected margin over a well-funded opponent in Stacey Abrams after signing similar Harpy legislation. Kim Reynolds dominated in Iowa. Uh, DeSantis here in Florida had signed the 15-week ban, hadn't signed the six-week ban yet, but obviously dominated last November as well. So it seems like we're we're doing well on the legislative front-ish. Uh, we're, we're, we're not doing particularly well, to put it mildly. We're really getting our butts creamed. At the ballot box, and uh, you know all of kind of the conservative philosophical objections to direct democracy, publicitary, you know, ballot box referenda, you know, CEG, James Madison, Federalist Ten, you know, all of that applies strong here. But more generally speaking, the column that I wrote, which I kind of adopted for remarks at a pro-life summit I was speaking at last week uh, in front of mostly a state lawmaker audience, I would say I got a mixed reaction, uh, but but fairly positive. Um, the note of caution that I was sounding was, look. We had this amazing result in the Dobbs case. We overturned Roe versus Wade. It took it took forty nine years to do that. I mean, I mean, it's, God knows how many tens of millions of unborn children, of course, met the abortionist knife over the course of that time. But the idea that we were ever going to over to, to kind of illegalize or abolish abortion in America, the kind of the, within the next year or two, I, I mean, no one serious, I presume, actually thought that. So we have to be a little more realistic and sober and prudential about what we're able to get across here. And in the column and in my speech, I kind of reminded pro-lifers who think back to, to Lincoln himself, who, you know, who faced a similar crisis when it came to chattel slavery, which for many reasons I have always analogized to, to abortion, the treatment of human beings as property, uh, substance due process, all, all of it. The, the parallels are, are actually quite striking. And you know Lincoln was not Thaddeus Stevens. Obviously, he was not a radical Republican. He was he was fundamentally kind of a more moderate, so to speak, in the true sense of the term, because he really understood incrementalism and prudence. So that that was kind of the note of caution that I sent to, to pro-lifers. There, I think state legislatures can lead their electorate's public opinion a little bit within the margins of prudence. But these ballot box referenda, you know, to quote the former president, you know, we've got to put a hard stop to this until we can figure out what the hell is going on, I think. Um, so on that note, I'll toss it open to you guys. What happened in Ohio last week? I, it is just a five alarm fire. What's on the ballot. Um, and you know, what happened in Ohio last week is a, a five alarm fire in and of itself. I know it was sort of a process vote. Um, but as, as Josh you know, correctly outlined, it was a proxy and there was out there was outspending involved, and I just felt as though nobody in conservative media was paying any attention to it. Uh, I think we did our best to cover it at the Federalist. Uh, my colleague Jordan Boyd was all over it, but it it's as though it never happened. Almost, um, you know, there there are some of the the big pro life groups were all over it and were running ads and did what they could, but. Um, it is, it, the stakes in Ohio are incredibly high. Uh, people see that the left understood what happened in Michigan, understood what happened in Kansas, and they're now trying to replicate that in red states around the country in ways that will be severely detrimental to the pro-life movement. And uh, because there's a presidential election cycle playing out because of all the drama surrounding both Donald Trump and Joe Biden, this is taking a backseat. I think that's especially true post-Dobbs when you know people rightfully anticipated there would be some complacency after a major unthinkable victory. Um, it's It would almost be unnatural not to have complacency but the lack of attention I've seen directed to Ohio, the lack of resources I've seen directed to Ohio, um, you should be, a, it, it makes me shudder as someone in the pro-life movement for what the future might look like, because there's no question, this is a, a difficult message. Um, you know, in, in a country as far advanced and, and decadent as ours, or in the, the sort of process of decadence as ours, it is a, it's actually very difficult. Conservatives are fooling themselves to think that it's not difficult to make the pro-life case in these states. It is. Um, it's not easy. People are not as open-minded to it as you would think. Uh, going on offense is not as easy as it sounds, uh, as barbaric as the left's position on this is. I mean, how many media outlets last week were given fact-checking Ron DeSantis in the middle of an interview for saying that Democrats want abortion up to birth. They do. They almost all of them have voted in favor of that. So again, like it is barbaric. It is there for everyone to see, but it's not an easy message to make. You have the entire culture and the media working against you. So if you don't take these things seriously, um, 
it's it's going to be a really really difficult road to head and uh, road ahead and i don't think the signs are good right now for the pro-life movement yeah i mean i, th I think um taking this issue out of the political sphere uh allowed both parties to be very dishonest about it um for different reasons right uh the left has the backing of the media and will never be pressed on the unpopularities of their position in the same way, right? How many Republican candidates have we seen, um, even you know, pre-Dobbs, uh, pressed on whether or not they believe in exceptions for rape and incest, right? Um, which can constitute a small percentage of, of what we're talking about. Uh, correspondingly, how many Democratic politicians have you seen being pushed on, you know, the former governor's Northam's position of, of abortion after birth or a, a abortion after viably delivered children um, or infanticide? Right. So uh, there, there is in that sense, it allows the, the kind of one two step that I don't think even a lot of the Democratic Party's own voters and people who are pro-choice uh, understand like. Um, I, I almost wonder at uh, the, the fact-checking incident that Emily mentioned, um, whether that was actually one of the nefarious sort of media tricks or whether actually the bubble is so thick um, that that this, I forgot who it was, but this this woman, this relatively young reporter, um, actually didn't know that virtually every Democratic, major Democratic uh, and progressive politician is on record uh, supporting abortion for any reason on demand for all, th all nine months of pregnancy, right? Um, because I, I think the the BS on that is so thick. On the other hand, um, having it in the courts was convenient for the Republican Party because it allowed them to fundraise off of, of a, a very organic pro-life movement um, and make commitments without having any actual substantive plan of, of how, how to meet them. Um, look, I, I, I just, for the record, completely disagree with Josh's, uh, constitutional position about the 14th amendment, um, on this. I think this is the heart of state power, just like murder. Um, but I, I do think that there are nationalizing forces here. And in that sense, I agree with the civil war analogy that, that it's going to be very, very difficult in, um, especially actually in the modern world where it's very easy to ferry somebody, across state lines for, for a minimal amount of money for, for philanthropy, how to prevent in even a patchwork of laws. Um, we may just find that the, the, um, demand for abortion is met by philanthropy, uh, moving young women or, uh, across state lines to states where the, the regime is more liberal. So in that sense, it does have a nationalizing tendency. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what political power is for. We we uh, we we got a great victory in Dobbs. Um, and now we're paying a, a political backlash price at the ballot box. Um, that that is as it should be in a certain sense. Um, that's what what using political power and political capital is for is actually to put W's on the board. Well, I'll just be brief and say, you know, it strikes me that the the issue for or one way that conservatives ought to think about this is what would progressives do were they in the same position we are? And part of it certainly is making very clear what the opponent's position is, which is infanticide straight up. Um, also that the opponent's position really is the anti-science position. If you want to set aside the legal and more importantly, probably the moral arguments here that viability continues to creep up earlier and earlier uh, so the science is actually proving on the conservative side of the argument here. So the the prudential question, I think, to Josh's point is essentially, what is the best you can do within each individual state? And then how do you get the voters mobilized and there? Obviously, Democrats think that they are winning on this issue. There is some evidence to support it on the political side on the ground. This shows the limits of what you can do through the courts. But it also points to the fact that uh, the much harder issue that we have is a, a corrupted society. And so when you're trying to deal with uh, the symptoms and the root causes remain, uh, it, it points to the limits of what we can do politically and the hardships that we're going to face until we can win the argument and then win the politics. So with that, let's turn it over to Emily to talk about another sign of the corrosion of our society in smash and grabs. So last week in California, last weekend in California, there was a smash and grab that video went viral of at a Nordstrom. Uh, they made off the perpetrators who, by the way, have not been caught, which seems amazing to me that you can be at just outside Los Angeles, uh, 
commit a crime as brazen as, as this one where you smash into a store, grab as much merchandise as you can. There were tons of perpetrators to this crime. Uh, so the fact that the police have not caught them is stunning. Uh, it was in like Topanga Canyon and uh, they steal about $100,000 worth of merchandise. Uh, but actually on Tuesday, also in LA, a YSL had been robbed uh, in a smash and grab of like $300,000 worth of merchandise. So we're almost up to uh, like, I mean, th- that's like in a, a truly stunning amount of money, like half a million dollars worth of merchandise stolen in just a couple of days at retailers in LA. But it's also worth looking at Chicago because video didn't go viral of this, uh, but there was a smash and grab at a Mac store. So a cosmetic store on Saturday. Um, just before that, there had been a smash and grab on August 5th at a Dior store. Um, and so the, the Mac store was actually on Michigan Avenue. So famous Michigan Avenue in Chicago, um, which has just never bounced back after the pandemic from what I've heard. You have all of this happening around the country against the backdrop of uh, the industry, the I think this is, these are numbers from the National Retail Federation that say organized retail crime has been going, going up about 26.5% since 2021, so 27% since 2021. Uh, Obviously, laws that have been added to the books or selective prosecutions or new uh, prosecution policies in certain cities. Uh, Gascon is obviously uh, in LA County. That's a really big deal. Uh, They have a huge backlog of cases in LA County. If you think that is completely disconnected from trends like these, you're basically out of your mind. Um, And it's against the backdrop of, uh, you know, where, where some people are saying, listen, there are a lot of people like to say crime is declining, but they're really talking about very particular types of crime. And they're talking about, uh, in many cases, national averages, which I think are useful. Um, for instance, you know, nationally, uh, the murder rate may be down uh, in the years since the pandemic, now that we're in 2023, but other types of violent crime are up. Like we just uh, mentioned organized retail crime up about 27% in the last two years, um, but also motor vehicle thefts are up nationwide. So I'm just kicking out of this open to the group um, to say, you know, most of the country uh, doesn't live in a city, but between people that live in cities and live around cities, uh, the Wall Street Journal also in 2022 had a really startling article on the rise in crime in rural areas, which I always was bringing up when people were talking about try that in a small town. Um, this is not just something that's concentrated in cities, although cities are are bearing the brunt of it, but it's just our inability to uh, complete basic functions as a society. It is Gotham. You know, wealthy people are less worried about what's happening um, at, you know, the the smash and grab at the Nordstrom because uh, you know they probably have somebody shopping for them or they're shopping all online now uh, or they travel with you know security details or whatever it is so um, on on that note I'll toss it open to the group just to you know the other angle I think important is important here um, and one thing that I actually tweeted was this is all a push by the left that purports to represent the working class and then you have these working class employees of Nordstrom, Mac, Dior, um, having to defend their stores in these smash and grabs, having to endure the trauma of being held up at gunpoint um, and and uh, hold off violence. It's just absurd. Protect your merchandise, et cetera, et cetera. So that's another angle. But let me toss it open to the group for thoughts on the smash and grab trend and uh, the, the sort of crime trends nationwide. Well, let me say one thing that one will notice in New York, and I know that this is true in other cities. And in fact, in other cities, you have pharmacies, for example, that have just completely shut down in many instances. But in New York, for example, almost all of these basic items are under lock and key, literally in pharmacies. And I assume this probably extends to other establishments as well. What an embarrassment that is. Like, I don't think any of us could have ever anticipated when we were kids growing up that there would be a time where the crime would be so brazen and widespread and tolerated, if not celebrated, essentially, as if society has somehow wronged people and thus they are justified in engaging in petty theft and worse, that that's somehow acceptable. And so we have to resort to literally locking under key basic items. That's an embarrassment. That's a total indictment of the progressive regimes that have been implemented. And you know, a broader theme that we've talked about is 
on the one hand, you have invented thought crimes and the complete torturing of laws to try and shoehorn political conduct into criminal conspiracies and then to railroad people using the justice system. So invented thought crimes are used to persecute the dissent in this country. And then on the other hand, all manner of crimes from constituents that the progressives like are allowed to occur you know, essentially with total impunity. And this really, this really meets the definition of that concept of anarcho-tyranny. And again, I guess I would say the brazenness seems to be the point. Real crimes up to and including getting assaulted and theft and beyond and all of the social maladies that are associated with that are allowed to occur with total impunity. Nothing is done about it. And then they create crimes to try to go after their political enemies. That is the paradigm under which we're operating. And until and unless there's an equal reaction to meet it, it's only going to get much worse. Yeah, um, just a, a few quick bullet points on this one. Um, one, of course, this shows the the nonsense of the AOC line about, you know, not being able to feed your family, Gucci bags. Um, and and I really recommend Raphael Mangual's book and his other work uh, over at the Manhattan Institute uh, on this uh, crime. It turns out does not actually move um, much during recessions, for example. There, there really isn't a strong correlation uh, between general downturns and, and people doing financially worse and, and crime going up uh, because it's happening for entirely different reasons. As Ben pointed out, you know, Donald Trump is the only person who has to fear indictment in in, uh, in Manhattan. Uh, in, in, and there, there is something of the anarcho-tyranny uh, label to this for sure. Um, and then finally about the embarrassment of, of locking up things and and everything Emily said was confirmed the uh, a, a longtime department store in in um San Francisco took out front page ads a couple of days ago to basically say we will have to shut our doors next year if if this continues right um it's not possible and and you can see that there's a, a mall um a very fancy mall at one point uh on Market Street in San Francisco uh I've been going to since I was a little girl um half of those storefronts, are empty are going to be empty. Most of the uh, stores are um, putting out public statements about how they cannot continue to operate at this kind of loss um, because there's a $900 limit in San Francisco. So if you don't steal, if you steal under $900, um, they they have announced that they're not going to prosecute you. Um, of course, so that's that's what happens in, in terms of locking everything up behind, uh, behind plastic well, uh, if you don't put criminals in jail, then the rest of us have to live like we are in jail. Um, and and that's kind of the bottom line. And I, I agree with Ben, what everything that Ben said, it, it's, it's embarrassing. Yeah, look, when you announce, and typically these are Soros-funded prosecutors who do this, when you announce ahead of time that you are not going to prosecute theft when it is under a certain amount, as the as New York City has been doing for years now. I think that I don't remember the exact number is might be like under $199, something like that. I can't remember exactly what it is. Uh, obviously, you're going to go in and, and just steal a lot of crap. Now, obviously, that does not necessarily apply to to Gucci bags or, or anything like that. But I mean, when you have public officials, you know, talking about rioting and anarchy and looting in the streets as acts of kind of economic injustice and and crying out for help amidst, you know, structural racism and all this other garbage that we heard during the 2020 Black Lives Matter, Antifa riots and whatnot there. I mean, at a certain level, what do you expect? And, you know, I guess part of me comes back to the old H.L. Mencken line about, you know, give it to the voters given hard about democracy when it comes to these sorrows from the prosecutors. You know, in Los Angeles in particular, uh, what's his name? Uh, George Gascon, who's the who's the Soros funded uh, district attorney there in Los Angeles. I mean, he, he faced a recall, if I recall, didn't he? I mean, this was after I think Chesa Boudin was recalled in San Francisco. So yeah, Gascon faced either one or maybe even two re recall elections there. So you know, at some point there, um, you know, if if you are just sick and tired of the nonsense in Los Angeles County, which you should then it's only so much you can do. At some point, the remedy is to get the hell up, get in your two feet, and move to a place where your children, your loved ones, and you yourself will not be potentially subject to horrific, petty, or violent or property crime.
Well, on that note, let's go to parting shots. Oh, I'll kick us off this time. Um, you know, there has been this horrible fire in Hawaii and Maui. Um, and it, it, unfortunately, I, I think the death toll will probably end up quite high. Um, and so on the one hand, of course, this is a terrible tragedy and to some extent things happen, um, but it's increasingly looking like there was a lot of, of incompetence and malfeasance that led not only to the loss of property, but potentially to the loss of life. Um, the, the town largely had very little warning. Um, people called saying that they had seen or smelled fire um, and, and the authorities basically told everyone it's fine, um, which gave people a lot less time to evacuate i mean you see uh, like burned cars on the freeway right um gave people a lot less time to evacuate because the authorities didn't do what was necessary then there's an entire question of forest management something that uh, the state of california is facing uh that canada has been facing uh and and you know consequently making the entire northeast unlivable for half the summer um so all of these things, of course, are being rolled into a CYA story about um, about climate change, when in reality there are some very concrete things that, that could be done um, to prevent this kind of tragedy. And then the other piece of this, of course, is uh, Joe Biden's decision not to comment multiple times, um, dismissing questions about this. Now he has rolled out the appropriate FEMA response uh, at this point. It's hard to see. Uh, we don't know yet whether that response will be well executed or not. Um, we'll have to wait and see. Hopefully it will be. Um, but but Joe's sort of dismissal of this um, just reminds me of, of how absolutely brutalized George W. Bush got uh, for his response to Katrina. Oh, we may find at the end of this there's a higher loss of life in, in this incident than in Katrina. Um, but, you know, nobody's hopping out on a plane right now from the administration to to go um to go out to Maui so uh i guess our, our hearts go out to the victims in this case actually one of my uh colleagues at IWF um one of our fellows she uh she was caught up in this unfortunately she's okay but she lost basically everything um she and her family are all right though so that's the the, the most important thing uh that this does seem to be building into there there are i believe 1500 people who are still missing and the problem with the geography there is there aren't there weren't a lot of places for people to go um, so the fear is that that 1500, a quite high percentage of that 1500 missing, uh, may, may be dead, hopefully not, but we'll know in the coming days. Um, and I think that it's, it's totally legitimate to, to hold both the local and state authorities responsible for mistakes that could have cost people property and lives. Um, and then ultimately to hold, uh, the government, the head of the government, Joe Biden responsible for his callousness and response. You know, and as from California, obviously, and it reminds me of, in some ways, uh, perhaps we'll find there was a similarity with what PG&E, um, the, the faulty issues they had with equipment in California that led to uh, devastating wildfires. And that can happen um, when you have cronyism, as was the case in California. So I'm not rushing to judgment and you're keeping everybody in our prayers right now. Um, it's just incredibly important and that's certainly where they are but another reminder of how stupid our politics are um that you know we're, we're in such a ridiculous place right now where uh, you have somebody who never could have been president in fact tried many times in the years past um and it didn't work for an obvious reason which is not he's not qualified um and again and that has has high disapproval ratings his entire party you know there's huge numbers that want a different option um and i think for obvious reasons it doesn't matter what your ideology is um, but when you have national crises like this politics ideology aside at the very least you want somebody who can string sentences together um, and you want somebody who is not the the puppet of forces we don't know or understand things that are happening you know behind closed doors um, potentially Barack Obama as we learned from that long tablet article uh, so that it is just I don't know it's just a tragedy that we're in a place where um, these are these are our options and there are real, there's the life and death consequences of that. Uh, life and death is on the line every day uh, because we can't put together uh, competent leadership in the United States anymore.
So uh, I'll go ahead and uh, take it in another direction for a moment, uh, just to return to the whole Hunter Biden saga, special counsel, et cetera. Um, a couple of points worth noting uh, that I was remiss in mentioning before. One is that the order for the special counsel calls on uh, USA Weiss or now special counsel Weiss to draft a report at the end of the prosecution. This will serve as a CYA exercise for the Justice Department. So Weiss has been a good soldier the whole time, defending Merrick Garland about claims that he could bring charges wherever he wanted and he had all this authority, yet clearly he didn't because he wasn't promoted to special counsel. Now he is. But this will provide, once again, the Justice Department with a way to protect the institutions in the face of the whistleblower allegations that continue to rise to the fore. And by the way, that were further corroborated this week when a former FBI, I believe, supervisory special agent, some of his deposition or maybe all of it was released. Uh, and he addressed the idea raised by the IRS whistleblowers that Hunter Biden's that the Biden transition team was tipped off when investigators were planning to interview him in December of 2020. And that interview, of course, never happened. And then there was the obstruction, essentially, of the investigation. A couple other points in real time as we're recording this, more filings continue to drop in the Hunter Biden case in Delaware. And apparently the Justice Department is saying that in their view, and there are many other revelations to this, which maybe we'll talk about a bit next week, uh, the free trial diversion agreement with that global immunity get out of jail free clause is not binding and not in effect, the DOJ says. And there appears to be infighting between the Hunter Biden legal team characterization of what has transpired around the development of the plea deal and negotiations about it and what the DOJ is saying. So whether or not this infighting is real or some kind of uh, contrived fake infighting to some end, I don't know yet, but it's going to be very interesting to see if this confrontation actually escalates and then what the judge presiding over the case does in Delaware. Um, and last but not least, as a factual matter, uh, Josh noted that uh, he thought Durham was inactive as a U.S. attorney when he was uh, appointed to a special counsel. Durham was, in fact, U.S. attorney when he was appointed. Uh, I only found this out because I was sort of aghast when I saw that Weiss was appointed when the, of course, the point is that a special counsel is supposed to be outside of government and someone who's brought in when there's an obvious conflict. Of course, David Weiss essentially personifies conflict in this case uh, and is the most involved person in what has transpired. So he is the least equipped person to handle the case. And he, of course, threw the whistleblowers off the case in the first place. He also knew the kinds of arguments the whistleblowers were going to allege because the U.S. the, the DOJ itself had asked for emails of the whistleblower uh, leading up to their allegations openly. Um, so, but that said, obviously there's a clear difference, which was that Durham had nothing to do with Russiagate and of course had a record of having looked into complex investigations implicating government officials and Weiss had no such sort of insulation and independence. That said, Still, the fact that attorneys general now under Democrats and Republicans have both ignored aspects of the regulations and really violated the letter and spirit and have done so in saying that under their attorney general's authority, they are actually appointing these people special counsel rather than under the special counsel regulations in toto in and of itself just represents another evisceration of the norms. And in this case, the regulations at play and further, of course, have sullied the justice system. So my apologies for, for the factual error, and thank you for the, for the for the correction there. But the distinctions that you point out are are, are very much extremely important, and happy to em emphasize those uh, distinctions. So I, I'll take it in a totally different direction. I've been thinking about political economy a lot during the course of this episode. We haven't discussed it at all, and the reason for that is because on my own show over at Newsweek, I had my my friend Sorab Mari on. For the, my episode that uh, most recently came out, we were discussing the launch of his new book, Tyranny Inc. And, uh, you know, we, we had a great conversation. I would obviously selfishly encourage you to go ahead and check it out. And, you know, in the course of that conversation, we were, you know, praising some realignment curious um, Republican senators, folks like J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, uh, and Dean Marco Rubio, very much so as well. 
uh, the kind of folks who, you know, you, you might see at Orin Cast American Compass events, things like that. Um, but then, you know, after Sorb and I recorded, you know, I saw his his essay uh, at Newsweek, my own publication, where, you know, he, he certainly had some good kind words to say about those kind of folks, but also had some good words to say about folks like Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders. And I, I just feel compelled to point out that there, there there is a distinction certainly between kind of a populist minded conservative like like a Josh Hawley versus someone like Bernie Sanders who honeymooned in the former Soviet Union and supported you know Fidel Castro and was deeply sympathetic to the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. Um, and you know again, Saurabh's a friend. I'm not going to speak for him. I really enjoyed having him on my show this week. But I, I, I say all this not because it's about Saurabh, but just because I, I do fear that there are some in in kind of the not necessarily kind of the NatCon specific orbit, but really just kind of the the so-called new right, more broadly speaking. I fear that there are some who are probably inclined to to take a lot of the realignment talk a little too far. Now, I've been deeply supportive of most of these efforts. I, I've been a member of uh, American Compass since like, a month, like the month that it launched or something along those lines. I've written for Julius Krein and American Affairs multiple times. I, I, I totally am on board with reshoring uh, you know, uh, supply chains, manufacturing, industrial policy, a more vigorous approach to antitrust, you know, all this stuff. But uh, again, let's let's be reasonable here. <laughs> Um, you know, there's no such thing, I want to say, as a based case for socialism, right? I mean, that's kind of what I'm trying to really say there. Is I'm trying to kind of explain to the youths out there that we shouldn't be taking this too far. There is such thing as, again, to go back to prudence, there is such thing as a prudential middle ground measure here, very much in line with kind of the American system of Alexander Hamilton, Henry Clay, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, very much in line with kind of the two cheers for capitalism, not three cheers, but two cheers of Irving Crystal here. So let's not overshoot the mark while we are justly criticizing the neoliberal status quo. So on that note, on behalf of Emily, Josh, and Inez, thanks for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten, and we'll see you at the next NACON squad.